0: all right hello friends welcome to the more to the story podcast i am so glad that you have come along this is going to be a great impromptu show as we're dealing with a very important issue and you already see on the screen i have my guest with me but before we do that i want to make sure you know this podcast is brought to you by wesley biblical seminary where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches and if you like the things you hear from robert Gagnon, and you like the things that we're going to be talking about today my guess is is that you would be a great fit for wesley biblical seminary rather one of our lay initiatives or all of our programs from um, bachelors masters doctoral degrees we would love to have you learn more about what's happening here we have just added 350 new students in the last five months who are with us because of the course of study with the global methodist church So that we are the first group that was first institution that was approved by the Global Methodist Church for that program. And we're delighted to be serving those students all around the world. In addition to our already- Uh, the way we've been serving many denominations, independent churches. We have our highest enrollment yet at 590 students, the biggest moment in the history of Wesley Biblical Seminary. So check us out at WBS.edu. And I'm thankful to my my friends at WPO Development who have led churches, organizations, and all sorts of groups, schools through successful capital campaigns. You can find out more about them at WPO Development. I've used them in the past and they've helped me significantly. And find Finally, if you're interested in things coming from this podcast, you can go to Andy Miller, the third.com. That's andymilleriii.com, And you can sign up for my email list where I'll send a free tool for folks. It's called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. And it's a guide to help people spend time in the text to go deeper into studying scripture with the aim of creatively presenting that truth to people God's called you to serve. So I'd love for you to check that out. All right. I am glad to welcome to the podcast, my friend, Dr. Robert Gagnon. And Robert, I'm going to not just call you Rob, a doctor or I'm not going to just call you a um, professor. I'm going to say prophet, the prophet. I so appreciate your ministry and we just published from WBS an article that you have written in response to Andy Stanley. So before we get into that, thanks so much for coming back to the podcast.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me, Andy. And as you know, they stoned the prophets, so I'm not quite sure I want
0: that title. (laughs) Well, I I will be careful then in how I apply. All right, we'll stick to doctor. We'll stick to doctor. But obviously, like we're in this interesting moment and I I let people know that this is going to be happening, this live conversation. And I'm going to do my best to see if I can look over at this screen. So if anybody has any questions that I can offer to Dr. Gagnon, we'll try to do that. But I mean, part of why I call you a prophet is you've been willing to stick your neck out and stand up for biblical truth based upon decades of study. And so when something comes up like this, what, when you, when you, you had a little sense that this might be coming with the conference that Andy Stanley hosted at his church North point, what, what was your frame of mind as this was coming about?
1: Well, I had already done some homework on this. I read about the people who are organizing the embrace the unconditional conference was put right. on by an organization called embrace the journey. Um, Greg and, um, Lynn McDonald. So I had read their book, Embrace the Journey, okay. uh, which was painful, but I did. Anyway, okay. And uh, obviously, I knew who the people were, for the most part, who were going to be speakers at this so-called unconditional conference. It was quite clear that the whole agenda would be oriented around towards parents no longer calling into question a child's decision to move into the Gay, if you will, or homosexual lifestyle, or even a transgender lifestyle, but actually, even to rejoice, right, uh, in a child's movement in that direction rather than uh, grieving it. And all the speakers that were put on this in this conference were persons who themselves did not believe that the Bible rejected homosexual practice and transgenderism per se, and in fact, two of the Speakers, one a plenary speaker, the other a breakout speaker, were actually gay men who were married to men, and wow. um, and and then of course everyone else who wasn't identifying as gay or lesbian was certainly promoting it, including uh, the person in charge of his of Stanley's care ministry at his church, Debbie Cossey. Okay. Uh, so it was quite clear where this was heading uh, from the beginning, and his Sunday sermon right after the conference in which he defended what he did was what i in the end devoted this article to address
0: right well thanks so much for doing this and we're really glad at wesley biblical seminary to be the ones that publish that with thank you for offering it to us we you know and i think you know that we stand with you on this. Hence, we hosted a conference this uh, past February identifying that this, the human sexuality, a biblical view of human sexuality is an essential of Christian doctrine. Um, so, that's in part why we want to be identified with you is that we think you're out there standing up for these sort of truths, even though in this moment, there's a way that it's hard. Uh, there's a way that it's, it's hard for us to do this because, you know, uh, Andy Stanley is a notable a recognized leader. He's somebody that probably five, 10 years ago, I was listening to on a regular basis, getting leadership advice as I was serving a church. He's successful. He's seemingly effective. He's winsome. And he he has somewhat of a, I I think he thought of it as a zinger sort of line about Jesus not drawing lines, but instead drawing circles. And you immediately uh, go after that idea in your article. I mean, there's some there's some logical challenges with it too, but what's the challenge with that sort of line?
1: Well, it shows a great deal of confusion about Jesus's ministry on the part of Andy Stanley. And by the way, just for one moment to note, uh, Wesley Biblical Seminary, yes, indeed, recognizes the urgency of this issue. It's actually extraordinary that Wesley Biblical Seminary is um, probably not in the majority. Uh, in that view, in recognizing that. And yet, any Christian from the first century, uh, including all the major protagonists of the faith, Jesus, Paul, uh, the whole apostolic witness to Christ, let alone the entire Old Testament canon before them, would have recognized this as an attack on the very foundation of sexual ethics to approve homosexual unions or to approve uh, transgender transition, so-called. So, Kudos for Wesley Biblical Seminary to be at that point. So when I try to identify in the articles, two main issues that are involved with his use about the big circles that Jesus created rather than just drawing lines. First of all, even apart from the fact that there's some geometry confusion here, <laughs> uh, circles are still lines uh, <laughs> and they still create boundaries. But even apart from that, it's very obvious from a series of texts that I cited, that Jesus was constantly drawing lines around moral behavior and including with regard to sexual ethics. And even Stanley himself draws these lines, so to speak. There are a lot of things that he wouldn't put in his big circle. I'm quite sure about that. Everything from incest to polyamory, adultery, stealing, economic exploitation, racism, He would would put these things outside that circle, however he wants to draw the circle. The only reason why he doesn't do that for the issues of homosexual practice and transgenderism is that he does not regard those as egregious sins. Hmm. Mm -hmm. But scripture does. Jesus does. Paul does. The entire witness of scripture does because it attacks the very foundation of sexual ethics. That's the first point. We could talk about texts that point that out, where Jesus draws lines. But the second point is that he shows confusion around this big circle that he talks about Jesus creating. Jesus has a big circle, if you will, in his outreach to those who are not his disciples, to those who are not inheriting the kingdom of God that he proclaims who are known for being egregious sinners, whether it be in terms of economic exploitation with tax collectors or with sexual sinners, on the other hand. Um, So Jesus is very broad in his outreach to those who need to repent and receive the kingdom that he's proclaiming. But when it comes time to defining who disciples are, defining who his followers are, in fact, Jesus has a very narrow approach. I mean, it's not, and I didn't cite this, although I should have, but it's not accidental that Jesus, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the great programmatic statement of Jesus' teaching according to the Gospel of Matthew, what does he say? Does he talk about it uh, being easy to get into the kingdom of God and the the, the, the way is broad into the kingdom and many enter it? It's the exact opposite. Few yeah. enter it. The way is narrow, that's why he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and I'll say to you, I never knew you, right? Why? Because you didn't bear the fruit. And then he goes on to talk about those who build the house on the rock versus those who build the house on the sand. And those who build the house on sand are those who merely uh, hear Jesus's words, but don't do them. And that's what we're facing here with regard to this issue. People, you know, in the case of Andy Stanley, he says that, you know, he still regards homosexual practice and transgenderism as sin. He still holds to the biblical model of marriage between a male and a female. But when you read about everything he's said or done, actually watch it on video or this sermon that he gave recently, you find out that his holding to the biblical model of marriage is, in fact, in name only. You have to follow what he does. What he does tells you what his theology is.
0: Right. This is the challenge. And and you highlight this like that. the, The work of the pastor is the work of being a pastor theologian to bring the actual work into practice. If you don't do this, it essentially is using God's grace, as it says in Jude, as a a license to sin, a license for immorality. I mean, it's just hard to see like how you can't put these two things together. And and I I think that's the conflict.
1: Yeah. He says he has a new approach. He wants to go about, he's talking about what what he can do pastorally, putting a theology aside for the moment, but you can't be a good pastor if you don't implement theology, uh, right, it, you move from theology to the practice of the theology. Instead, he's putting completely aside the theology itself, so he can't move in the direction of practicing the theology, right? He really doesn't believe that there is anything at stake in an individual engaging in same sex intercourse or in an individual engaging in transgenderism for him the sense that i get is he considers if he considers it a sin at all and even that's questionable as i argue in the paper even if he consin- considers it a sin at all it would be on the level of say that we think of gluttony as a sin mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. you know go go out one night have a big meal with friends come back to your spouse and say honey i i have to confess tonight i really pigged out i think i probably committed the sin of gluttony Can you forgive me? Is there any spouse that would not be readily forgiving that? Knowing their own desire to eat? We would all be forgiving it instantly. We don't recognize this as a great sin. But if that same husband came home the following night and said, thank you so much for that forgiveness you gave me the night before, uh, because I know I'm going to get it tonight too. I just want to tell you, I just had sex with three men. Uh, Thank you for forgiving me. Yeah, and that is not going to happen. Your spouse is not going to respond in the same way. And we all know why that is. It's not an equal, it's not equally severe as a sin. One is a relatively light sin. The other is an egregious sin. So you're going to have to have a different response in the church. So if Stanley considers these things to be sin at all, it's only of a relatively lightweight matter.
0: And it's this... Continual challenge and friends, I'm on right now live with Dr. Robert Gagnon. I encourage you to get on. Those of you who are watching this, I encourage you to go find the article. I posted it on my site. Go to the WBS site and you can find it there as well. It's a it's a robust defense of the classical biblical position that argues line, several lines. From Andy Stanley's sermon and really just thinks about it critically. So, i and if you're watching this, I just invite you to share this, share this with other people as it's coming out and, and those of you who are, are getting onto it after the fact. Now, you and I have talked about this before, uh, Robert, when we had a, a past conversation where he talked about ra- whether or not somebody should attend. Uh, homosexual wedding, but it, and people can go back and find that conversation, uh, came out this past summer, but the, the fact, and many people just resist this idea. They don't like it. And maybe it's because there's like a folk theology that has taught this, that there are levels of sin that not, not all sins are on the same playing ground. Um, you want to just address that, like maybe somebody like what you just said, and it's so obvious what you just said, like you, there is something about the way that this violates sexual sins, rejecting God's creation has been a part of the classical way that people have rejected the, the dual nature, the like kind of the, the, the two-sided reality, the male, female binary, like that's part of the big issue that lies at the heart of why same sex behavior is a more egregious sin. But could you talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah,
1: Christians all the time open the door for accepting homosexual unions and transgenderism because they make comparisons, analogies, with things that we don't consider to be great sins, like like gluttony, for example. In fact, I had one episode uh, where I was being questioned by a lawyer at an event that I went to, and and he was just attacking the fact that I didn't think that all sins were equal in all respects, in, in terms of severity. And uh, he was making the comparison between same sex same-sex unions, erotic unions, and gluttony. So I instead made the comparison with incest, which really is a much better analog because there are a lot more points of substantive agreement. He was outraged that I would make the comparison with incest. And I said, well, wait a minute. You just argued that all sin is equal. So right. what difference does it make to you whether I compare it to gluttony or incest? Right. And of course, the reality was he then he then you know said, Well, I don't want to talk to you anymore about this. So, <laughs> you know, understandably, because he wasn't acting logically or reasonably, nobody, and I mean nobody, even the most vigorous proponents of the view that all sin is equal, which is not a view that can be documented anywhere in scripture. Even they don't live like that. Nobody lives like that. Taking home a company pen is not the moral equivalent of Hitler's attempt to exterminate the Jews in World War II. Mm -hmm. These two are not moral equivalents. God doesn't consider it a moral equivalent. Neither should we, right? When Israel is engaged in the golden Cap debacle in their wilderness sojourn, and God tells Moses to go down from Mount Sinai, what does he say? go down because Israel is committing a great sin. Right. You can't have great sins if all sins are equal. Or when Jesus talks about the weightier matters of the law, clearly, if some matters are weightier than others, then it's not all equal. Now, all sin is equal in one respect, namely that if you think that your way into heaven is through personal merit, then any sin will get you excluded, however light or however heavy. Because we get in by grace, not by our own doing, but by God's doing, which we then have to appropriate by faith, which is not just merely intellectually saying yes to the truth, but as a holistic life reorientation to the gospel. So when we're addressing issues about how significant is the sin of homosexual practice, many people simply want to compare it to ways in which we've accommodated for divorce or remarriage after divorce. What we have Mm -hmm. to understand is that Jesus actually arrives at his position of monogamy, a limitation of two persons to a sexual union based on a male-female prerequisite for that union, based on Genesis 1.27, male and female, God created them, which itself is the segue to Genesis 2.24, precisely because God made us a complementary sexual pair, two primary sexes, designed by God in creation to be the complement or counterpart of the other. Precisely because of that, a man may become joined to a woman and the two become one flesh, the two become one, because each is half of a whole sexual spectrum. So what Jesus then did was derive a limitation of two persons to a sexual union, whether no polygamy or no revolving door of divorce and remarriage for any cause and said, I'm not going to allow that among my disciples precisely because of the sexual binary. The sexual binary is the predicate, the foundation for the limitation of two persons to a sexual union. Now, if you asked Andy Stanley, you know, would you permit Andy Stanley, uh, somebody in your church and consider them full Christians and, and not try to dissuade them from what they're doing if they were actively engaged in multiple partner concurrent sexual unions? And he would probably say absolutely not because right. it's a violation of monogamy.
0: That's a big right, deal, right. right? That monogamy is the only issue somehow.
1: That's right. And But he's not realizing that Jesus arrives at his position of a limitation of two persons to a sexual union based on God's creation of two complementary sexes. Homosexual practice is a direct assault on that foundation. It says that God's creation of male and female as complementary sexual pair makes no difference for mate selection and for the definition of marriage. But that is the foundation Mm -hmm. of the definition of marriage. So when you attack the very foundation of something, you're not merely attacking a side issue, an ancillary matter in this case. You are attacking the basis for which all other standards are determined. So in a sense, it's it's absurd for him to think incest is really bad or polyamory is very bad, but not the foundation which provides the predicate for rejecting those two other things that are so severe. So that makes homosexual practice among adult consensual sexual offenses between human beings the worst.
0: This is so helpful, Robert, like I've thought of this a few times since being more attuned to the work that you've done, like you challenged me one time, you kind of said, I, I haven't done this yet, but you said next time you're at a party, you know, bring up, hey, why is polyamory wrong? You know, any, anybody or, or, or bring it up. Any Anybody have problem with incest here? Um, yeah. So and, and that's a helpful piece. I mean, I, it's, it's done in humor and I appreciate it. But one of the things you can bring up is is, is since our last conversation, I've more readily used the idea of the incestuous man from 1 Corinthians 5 as an analogy to the sexual challenges of our time. So here's what I found is interesting is that people want to get out of that conversation really quickly. Like when you bring that up, they might say, well, you can't do that. And here's the, the quick thing I would say back is, well, why not? Like, and this is why can, like, if we're going to allow a dilution of the norms that come to us from scripture, why can't we just get rid of this?
1: Right. And they're, they're more than willing to try to cite other analogies, which favor their own ideology, right? They'll talk about change in divorce, change in women's roles, or they'll talk about remarriage after divorce, and they'll talk about the various accommodations that the church makes. Why can't we make that accommodation here? But instead of choosing the most proximate analogies, the closest analogies to homosexual practice, which are really incest and polyamory, instead of choosing those, they choose remote analogies because the proximate analogies don't get them to where they want to go, Mm. which is the ideological conclusion of approving same-sex unions. But that is dishonest analogical reasoning. If you're going to use analogical reasoning, if you're going to appeal to analogies, you have to pick the closest analogies. Otherwise, you're not being honest. You're being insincere. And so what are the closest analogies? The closest analogies are the things that bear the most substantive correspondences with the thing to which they're being compared, right? I mean, I'm not saying this is not rocket science. This this is obvious, right? The best analogy will have the most points of substantive comparison. And in this case, it's incest and polyamory, and here's why. Why is why is incest wrong? You know, yes, you, you brought up my, uh, my example story. Go to a cocktail party and say, why not have sex with your mother? Talk among yourselves. Yes, you will stop <laughs> conversation cold. People will be falling all over themselves to try to explain why that is wrong. The initial explanation will be because she's your mother, right? right if right. I have to explain it any further, there's a problem. But scripture actually does give us an indication about what's problematic with incest. Already in Leviticus 18.6, introducing the series of prohibitions of incest in that sex chapter, uh, it explains you shall not have sex with the flesh of your own flesh. That is somebody who's too much already you in your embodied humanity as a close kin and not enough of a kinship other. So too much sameness, structurally speaking, not enough complementary otherness. We would say scientifically now, not enough differentiation in the gene pool, right? Yes. It's too much sameness, structural sameness. Well, what's the problem with same, you know, same sex unions? Let's think about that. What's the problem, the primary problem with a same sex union? Too same much sameness. Same yeah. Right? Yeah. Not enough complementary. Uh, otherness in the sexual differentiation, the way in which God created woman. you know it's it's emphasized repeatedly four times in Genesis 2 21 to 24 in the story about the creation of the woman that something is extracted from the original human and out of that woman is formed. That's a missing element out of the original human so that when it talks about the definition of marriage, it's not just a union, of male and female, it's the reunion. It's mm-hmm. a way of a way of saying you see how man and woman are each half of a whole sexual spectrum. That when they unite, they create an integrated sexual whole because they fill in the gaps uh, lacking in one sex and moderate the extremes of each sex. So when you're saying when one is talking about you know, well, I'm really against incest, but same-sex unions, I'm okay with that. A person is completely misunderstanding the logic because the degree of uber sameness in sexual activity is much greater in as regards same-sex unions than it is yes. as regards incestuous unions. And now, we've some people
0: got, might uh, oh sorry to interrupt you, I'll let you finish your thought there.
1: Where it's and then the other principle with polyamory, Jesus has already made clear in his discussion in in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, which is that the 2 the limitation of two persons to a sexual union is based on the twoness of the sexes, the sexual binary. If God had created three sexes that could integrate for sexual union and procreation and so forth, then it would be possible to have three persons in a sexual union if there were three sexes. The creation of two sexes, Jesus says, is our indication that there's a limit to two. So if you want to do more, you're basically implying that There is no significance to God's creation of two complementary sexes. One thing is the foundation for principles extrapolated on as we proceed further ahead. That foundation is the male-female union. You got a problem with incest, you have a problem with polyamory, you should have a greater problem with the foundation that enables us to prohibit these other two things.
0: That is so helpful. And I think I encourage people just to go back and listen to that explanation again. And also look at Robert's article where he talks about the way Jesus closes up loopholes that come to us in the old, from the Old Testament. Rather, it has to do with uh, uh, polygamy and those type of p- pieces that come together. And then analyze the fact that there is no loophole regarding um same sex behavior. But one thing I, I've heard people kind of push back a little bit towards you on is the even the description of sexual whole uh, between the, the two opposite sexes. What does that say uh, does that is that a critique on those who remain single um, at this point and like if they're not able to be all that God's made them to be, if they're unless they're with a, um, a complementary sexual partner?
1: Uh, no, because obviously Jesus himself was single, Paul was single, etc. A person can uh, abstain from engaging in sexual intercourse, but even if they're abstaining from engaging in sexual intercourse, in order to do two things, number one, not be as concerned about the risk involved in proclaiming the Christian faith and how it may put your family, certainly in the first century, that's sort of been the case, in jeopardy and danger. Uh, And secondly, it maximizes your time availability that you have because you're, you know, obviously you're. Um, not engaged in a family union where you have to be committed to others and and you're responsible for their care and so forth. So for those two things, Jesus said, some Christians may choose to be, as he put it, eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven and not get married. Uh, But even Jesus, not even, even especially Jesus and Paul and all others still present themselves as men They don't present themselves as females, and likewise, female disciples, we had this problem at Corinth, where women are trying to eviscerate uh, the signs of their distinctions between with the other sex. Uh, They're trying to, in effect, eviscerate male-female differentiation, which Paul is upset about. No, you can't do that in this life. We will have resurrection bodies later. We will be neither married nor given in marriage, but in this life, we present ourselves as male and female, and if you engage in sexual activity, it has to be with a sexual counterpart or complement to yourself. Um, so, so that's clear in the biblical witness. Jesus isn't dressing up like a woman to make a right. statement that his maleness is irrelevant. If he did, he would be violating, he, he knows very well, God's creation of male and female, which preserves those distinctives. To override those distinctives that are given in creation is, in effect, to make a complaint against the way God made us.
0: Yeah, that's so helpful to be able to look at the nature of like what we're created to be, like what is the essence of who we are. I think that that's one of the challenges with this modern moment as it relates even to broad critical theories these uh, like, as some say cynical theories, but nevertheless, like these critical theories that see our essence. And like, it seems like Andy, I wonder if you think this is true. It seems like he's willing to see homosexuality as an identity or an ontological essence. Like this is who somebody is. So, and and you know, he goes on to say, this is like almost like too much of a burden to put on people like it's unsustainable, as he says. I mean, is this the problem? Is that people find their essence in kind of a Freudian category?
1: Look, the Christian life looks unsustainable, right? When (laughs) Jesus says, if if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and lose your life. That sounds unsustainable. And perhaps it is apart from the spirit of Jesus Christ, which is made available to those who believe. But then that transformation, consequently, is required of us. So there are always great demands that are being made in the Christian life, and I'm not I'm not saying that same-sex attractions don't create a great demand, or an experience of gender dysphoria doesn't uh, create problems for the individual life. But I'm also I'd also say they're not also the greatest challenges that Christians have ever faced. They are a great challenge. They are not the greatest. Some people go through much greater challenges in life economically, loss of loved ones, and so on and so forth. So look at Paul's life on a daily basis, right? Uh, The greatest demonstration of the power of Jesus was simply Paul getting up in the morning and doing the same thing he did the day before, which is going out and preaching an undiluted gospel that's going to get him persecuted, meaning um, beaten by rods, by secular authorities, whipped 40 lashes minus one in the synagogues, which he had multiple occasions poorly clad, poorly sheltered, poorly fed, and constant anxiety for his churches, beaten up by robber's stone. We're not talking about drugs. This is his daily existence. And yet, did it cause him to dilute the gospel in any way? It did not. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. a powerful testimony of his life. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Wow. So there's an important dynamic to lift up here. Having same-sex attractions or gender dysphoria is not the greatest tragedy in the world. Mm -hmm. In fact, it creates opportunities for God to show his power in the midst of our weakness. Amen. Like the kind of thing that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, right? The dying of Christ is working itself out in our bodies. And as it does so, the life of Christ is being manifested. There's an inverse relationship. We live, Christ doesn't live in us. Only when we die in relation to ourselves, Do we actually live for God? Does Christ and the controlling influence of his spirit live in us? And people like Andy Stanley are actually short circuiting the process of discipleship for persons with same sex attractions and with a transgender impulse. Right. Because they are not learning, as Paul learned with his thorn in the flesh, that God's grace is enough for us, that simply knowing God is enough for us. And, you know, sometimes God manifests his power in these dramatic ways, like the parting of the Red Sea or healing us of our illnesses or expelling demons and so forth, all dramatic occurrences, but we've learned in the gospel where front and center, the most dramatic demonstration of power turns out to be the crucified Christ on the cross. Can we now say to that God, I can see how you could use Jesus in an excruciating ignominious death on the cross i can see how you could turn that event around into the greatest event in cosmic history but my same sex attractions or gender disorder right. no way can't is touch that, that. Possible? right can't yeah. do that you're, you're you're not great enough you're not loving enough you're not gracious enough to make that happen that is a failure of faith and that's essentially what andy stanley is communicating over this nobody gets a pass no matter how great we think the deprivation is that we're experiencing or the difficulty we're being put in in our life, whether through external pressures or internal desires, either way, the demand is the same, Jesus said, for discipleship. If you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross, deny yourself, and lose your life. This is a total home makeover. And Andy Stanley is doing an injustice to persons who experience these difficulties in desires not only are these desires according to the apostle paul self-dishonoring desires erasing or threatening to efface the image-bearing that every one of us has which genesis 1 closely correlates with being made male and female right being made in god's image and likeness isn't with surrounding this notion of being made male and female it's a way of saying what we do sexually affects that image bearing. And when you allow people to engage in same-sex attractions or gender dysphoria, essentially you're allowing them to, rather than enhance, efface the image of God stamped on their being. And that is a dishonoring look Yeah, because it's treating their the wholeness that they have as a male or as a female as only half intact in relation to their own sex, or if transgender, not intact at all a complete denial and a complete rejection, that's self-dishonoring. But not only is it self-dishonoring, but as we just noted, it's a denial of the grace and power of God to work in the midst of our weakness rather than apart from it.
0: This is such a beautiful picture. It's so similar to what we emphasize here at Wesley Biblical Seminary. Again, this is Andy Miller and the More to Story podcast coming to you from Wesley Biblical Seminary in Ridgeland, Mississippi, where we're interviewing Dr. Robert Gagnon. Thanks for coming in live. We'd love it if you'd share a link to this. But what one thing I love about the tradition that this seminary sits in, even though we're not connected to any particular denomination, like we're not in denominational school, is the reality of this, a sanctifying grace to bring a person to a place where they do not have to sin, where they can move beyond these the bondage that we have in our internal nature, like original sin, that we have the opportunity to not to to not sin. John Wesley said this in his sermon, The Scripture Way of Salvation, that what he called perfect love or perfection or holiness, sanctification is he gave three words is love excluding sin. That love is so powerful that it can do it. Now, again, love is a thing that's often thrown up as the reason to let people do what they want to exist in the way that identify their essence as connected to their sexual sin. And so we're trying to move away from that. And one thing I think is really helpful that I've enjoyed from you. And if you read Dr. Gagnon's book, um, that was published several over twenty years ago now I think or around twenty years ago. Uh, the Bible homosexual practice is I'll, I'll say Robert you're really good at giving your um, the people you're critiquing credit like you I think you honor their arguments well and I like you present their side and I think they would say it too and I think you've professionally had that happen is that the top scholars engage will often engage you and think of your view as strong and. I'm curious, as you do that, as you're good at doing that, what do you think is behind, like, what's the good intention that Andy Stanley's trying to achieve? Is that, I mean, some people say he's a a wolf in sheep clothing, clothing, but let's just, let's try magic. What's he trying to do? What's the good that he's trying to do?
1: Well, I think Andy Stanley sympathizes with persons who experience same-sex attractions or gender dysphoria. This is putting the best possible face on it. I can't get into his part. And know what all his motives are, but I can look at what his actions are, and I can deduce from that what his real theology is, and I can assess those arguments. But I think he's concerned about that. He, I think, he feels probably some frustration, as any pastor would, that he can't simply wave a magic wand and eliminate same-sex attractions or gender dysphoria. I do think that that God, in some cases, uh, actually reduces the. Uh, The strength of impulses that are involved there, but not always. Sometimes God wants us to show his power in the midst of those contrary desires and not following them, right? I still feel an array of desires to do things that God doesn't want me to do, and I have to daily mortify those desires. So Stanley shouldn't give up. He shouldn't give up just because it looks difficult, that God can actually use lives that experience ongoing difficult impulses and use it to maximize his glory i mean the angels rejoice right do i get any credit for the fact that i don't engage in same-sex intercourse to god give me any credit for that no i don't have those desires right uh, although many have claimed i must have those desires to write on this subject like i do right which is like oh yeah well by the way i'm also against incest and uh, polygamy and i'm also against pedophilia Uh, But it's not because I hold some secret desires for all those things, right? Right. Because I think rather this is the biblical witness. Let's go with that. So Stanley, for whatever reason, I'm sure there are other factors, too, that are involved uh, simply because, you know, it's less pressure on the church. He's a seeker-friendly kind of church. This reaches out to more people, uh, probably gives a pass to heterosexuals and their sexual sin. Or abortion yeah. or other issues, it just makes them a a nicer looking church, a nicer looking pastor, which could also play into the reasons for it. Again, I don't know how much weight to give any given element, but if you're feeling sorry for somebody who has same sex attractions or gender dysphoria, the worst thing you could do is give them a pass with regard to what Jesus regards as the foundation of sexual ethics and to go ahead and fulfill desires. That in the end dishonor themselves. Yeah. Not a good thing. Let them experience the power of God in the midst of weakness, which is what should be true for all believers, not just persons who have same sex attractions or gender dysphoria.
0: Yes, that's helpful. This is like, a, I had some friends who are at that church and like, and defensive of him, and they suggest, well, this is just um, a pastor leading his church to love people well and i can't help but think like that if if we really affirm that this is a sinful behavior that could lead to somebody's eternal damnation please and i know i could have your colleague uh, jerry walls on and talk about the damnation side like i have a, like the a, a reality of hell, or you can get my course on heaven where i talk a, a whole session on hell like we but like let's just say that intentional willful continual uh, intentional sin is a part of what leads somebody to reject Christ and maybe to reject Him for eternity. If that's the case, is it loving somebody well to not tell them they're living in sin that they're that they're having a sinful action? I I don't know. Is that too simplistic for me, Robert?
1: No, absolutely not. I mean, I, and, and as I've said, I mean, if 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 Stan if Andy Stanley operated with a biblical notion here with Jesus's understanding of the issue which is that engaging in such behavior could get you excluded from the kingdom of God Mm -hmm. and sent into hell, engaging it in a serial, unrepentant way. If he really believed that, and that's certainly what Jesus and the whole apostolic witness to Christ believed, then he would be taking an entirely different approach. I mean, he actually talks about literally saving lives, he says. You know what? Think back to the woman caught in adultery. Why is it that Jesus holds in abeyance the capital sentencing for the adultery that she commits? It's because, not because he doesn't think adultery is a serious offense that could get you excluded from the kingdom of heaven. On the contrary, it's precisely he thinks that. So he tells her from now on, go and no longer be sinning. Now, people just stop there. But there's almost an identical phrase in John 5.14. This text in the woman caught in adultery is in chapter 8. In 5.14, Jesus says, from now on, go and no longer be sinning, and adds, lest something worse happen to you. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm. what would be worse than being stoned? According to the context in John 5, it's not inheriting eternal life. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that's what Jesus has in mind. Look again at Paul with the incestuous man. Andy Stanley is actually modeling his ministry to persons with same-sex attractions and gender dysphoria. He is modeling his ministry after the Corinthian pneumatics, the spiritual ones, who are tolerating this case of incest in their midst. midst. And in, in fact, Paul is saying, you become puffed up with your tolerance over this. You become inflated with pride over your ability to tolerate this act when in fact you should have been doing what you should have been mourning Hmm. where do you mourn you mourn at a funeral that's the venue for mourning paul is saying to them look this guy is headed for destruction and that's why the vice list that he gives in chapter five verses nine to ten of first corinthians are same vice list as the one he gives in first corinthians six nine to ten the one in 5, 9 to 10 says, you're not to even associate with such a person because you're, you're communicating to this person what, what they're doing is okay. Same vices in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, only he adds other sexual offenses to fill out what the sexually immoral is, including men who lie with a male. He now says this group is excluded from the kingdom of God. So that's why he's, he's connecting these two elements. The reason why he's saying, no, you should put in the name of the Lord Jesus, you should put the incestuous man on church discipline, not as a punitive measure, but as a remedial act, not as a permanent act, hopefully, but a temporary act in the hopes that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, right? So what is Paul most concerned about with the incestuous man? He's not tolerating it like the Corinthian believers are doing because he knows that toleration will lead to this person being excluded from the kingdom of God eternally. Wow. That's what Paul cares about. Yes, that's the model that we should be following. And by the way, I seem to recall, but correct me if I'm wrong about this, Andy, but isn't (laughs) it the case also in chapter 13, Paul gives us this hymn of love, right? Love is all about. Do, Do we really think that Paul did not understand the meaning of love? right when he took the actions that he took with the incestuous man and by the way too the first four chapters of that letter immediately preceding chapter 5 on the incestuous man they're all about unity the importance yeah. of the unity of the church but at this point paul says we cannot have unity over what this guy is doing because number 1 he's he's going to hell not to heaven if this persists and number 2 a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It will affect not only this incestuous man, but the whole community. Andy Stanley's not thinking about this. He's not only not thinking about the offenders engaged in these behaviors and what it will mean for them eternally, and it's not going to be saving their lives. That's not what Andy Stanley is doing. It's the exact opposite. But he's also not worrying about its impact on the whole community. Now I'm sure that Andy Andy Stanley would say, "Oh well, what do you what do you think? They're all going to become homosexual, or they're all going to become transgender? That's not going to happen. A ridiculous claim." I would say the same thing about the incestuous man.
0: Yeah. When
1: Paul says, "A little leaven leavens the whole lump," and he's talking about a case of incest, he doesn't think that if you approve this case of incest, that suddenly everyone is going to have sex with their parents or with their siblings. Right. He's not thinking that. But what he is thinking is. If you can let go God's standards on an irreducible minimum of sexual ethics, incest. I mean, Paul's thinking, like even Gentiles know this is wrong, right? I gotta explain to you why incest is wrong. We're at a real we're at a real crossroads here. Yes, because the message is now being sent. If this guy you're gonna tolerate and even brag about your ability to tolerate his case of incest, and by the way. Andy Stanley is doing some of that, right? He's bragging. He's right, comparing no, his gracious, loving outreach, to or the- even
0: the kids, the youth. I know I heard him say how the youth group is—it's so wonderful exactly. that people are coming out in the youth group and that kind of he's thing. He's comparing
1: himself how much better they do it at his church. He's puffed up about it.
0: No, he's inflated that, with
1: that, pride about it. Yeah. Right? It's the same thing with the Corinthians, but. While Paul knows everyone at Corinth is not going to go out and commit incest, he knows that by tolerating this behavior, he has sent the message, the Corinthians have sent the message, not Paul, that sexual sin doesn't really matter. Because if you can get you can let go, you can violate, you can transgress an irreducible minimum of sexual ethics, what isn't open season on. Mm, mm-hmm. And if you can say that it's, you know, we're not going to really make any big deal about people committing same-sex intercourse or transitioning to transgenderism, which are two elements, as we've said, that affect the very foundation of sexual ethics, male and female, God created them, yes. then we have sent a clear message that sexual purity doesn't matter, that yeah. sexual immorality will have no bearing on your inheritance of the kingdom of God. And that is the leaven of iniquity that leavens the whole batch of dough, the whole church completely. Yes. He's not thinking, and so many other Christians are not thinking like chess players. They're not thinking several moves ahead that allowing this will lead to all these other things. But that is, in fact, what Paul was doing at Corinth.
0: This is so helpful. And like I think going back to 1 Corinthians and using this analogous example is so helpful in in your own argumentation, friends, as you're doing this, just follow uh, Dr. Gagnon's lead here. You'll be surprised, just found out we have 4,500 people watching live with us here. Wonderful. Isn't what a blessing that they're able to hear this. Well, hopefully it stays on, Uh, you know, because we are saying something that that often the culture doesn't accept. But I think it's and and friends. I I might be able to figure out a way I have Somebody ready to text me if um, there's a question. We might be able to throw one question. We we only have a little bit longer here. But you have this interesting line in this article. I want to point people back to it. They can go to our website, wbs.edu, and find your article. This response, this longer response. It's not just a quick little shot in the dark like, I disagree it's not a tweet this is a substantive response and if you want more than that you can find that with Dr Gagnon's ministry but you have this line in that article said and I love this and it's, it's it's not what we would commonly hear certainly it's not an easy thing for a mega church pastor or any pastor to say but it is the christian message exclusion you you say exclusion has at its aim the recovery of the lost headed for destruction it is remedial and hopefully temporary. The exclusion is like a, is like a bad word. Right? We don't want to exclude anybody, but you, the idea of exclusion and really so many of the New Testament letters are, are putting up these challenges so that people can come back. There's a promise in the fact that exclusion is, in this sense, almost a grace.
1: That's right. I mean, think of, think of the story of the prodigal son. Um, Here's somebody who goes out, spends half his father's inheritance, including the text says on prostitutes. If he had come back and asked his father for the other half of the inheritance, the problem wouldn't be the father's experience of personal loss of wealth, because his entire concern was for his son, his younger son. His younger son, had he come back with that approach, would have still been lost, And would have still been, for all intents and purposes, dead. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. He
1: would not have been recovered. He would not have been found. And he would not now be alive. The reason why the father says, let's slay the fatted calf, is because this person comes back penitent. The return is itself, shuv, in Hebrew, a metaphor for repentance. He comes back saying, I'm not even worthy now to be called a son. He understands something now about God's grace in the whole matter. Uh, If he just treats me as hired help, I'll be happy. But no, God takes him back as a son, right? The importance of the return. Think about how generous Jesus is with grace. Luke 17, three to four. If your brother or sister sins, rebuke them. Hmm. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin. Seven times a day. Now, just think about that. Let's say your spouse goes and commits adultery, not once, not twice, not three times, but seven times that day, and then says, Come back, it says, Honey, I repent. Mm. It's going to be pretty hard to accept as genuine that confession, the sincerity of that confession of repentance, given the multiple violations, right? And especially if you continue doing it. But Jesus said, You know what? That's how grace is extraordinarily gracious in accepting the sincerity of a confession of repentance after some ridiculously high number of violations of the commands of God. But what cannot be allowed to happen is no repentance hmm. because no repentance means that the offender is not recovered for the kingdom of God. And that's what matters. That's what is so pivotal here. And that's what Andy Stanley is not ultimately concerning himself with and when jesus is talking about the importance of reproof there in that line what is he thinking of it's an intertextual echo to the second greatest commandment according to jesus leviticus nineteen eighteen: love your neighbor as yourself what is the context for that second greatest commandment you shall not hate your neighbor you shall not take revenge against your neighbor you shall not hold a grudge against your neighbor And if your neighbor does wrong, you shall reprove your neighbor, lest you incur guilt for failing to warn them. Because if you don't warn them and they stay on the path that leads to death, God will hold you personally culpable for that. Mm -hmm. You see how reproof is an essential element in the dynamic of loving your neighbor as yourself? But if you look at these Embrace the Journey people, the McDonald's that put on this conference, or you look at what Andy Stanley is doing, following in their in their wake, in their train, they're not concerned. In fact, they say, don't reprove. And they refer disrespectfully to the texts that speak about these issues as the clobber text. Yes. When are you ever going to hear Andy Stanley refer to texts against racism as clobber text? Right or text against incest or economic exploitation as clobber text. They're not going to do that because it's disrespectful of the biblical witness about what God gives priority to. Hmm. But they do that here because they do convey disrespect for the biblical witness and end up, wind up promoting functionally behavior that God finds abhorrent. That language is used in scripture for the behavior something that God detests it's a abhorrent behavior and it leads the offenders into being excluded from God's kingdom and sends a clear message to everybody else in the church that God is not serious about sexual purity. There are so many ramifications flowing out of this that Stanley either is not realizing or doesn't want to acknowledge because he has other considerations that are more important to him. Right. If you look, for example, again at the McDonald's book, Embrace the Journey, again, they put on this conference. Stanley spent about 15 minutes of his sermon the following following the conference extolling how wonderful the McDonald's are. They tell a story about a couple that had a very hard time with the fact that their daughter identified as lesbian. Then they had an even harder time when that daughter went on to identify as a transgender male. And then they present as a success story that the parents were able to learn to be happy about this transition and are now happy with their son. This is the language used by the McDonald's. They now refer to a biological female as the son. And this is now a win-win story. The power of Jesus is being manifested in their lives as never before by approving a transgender transition of their daughter allegedly to a male that's what the mcdonald's give as an example of a success story Mm -hmm. and all i can say to that is two words regarding jesus jesus weeps Mm -hmm. because that person rather than being lost rather than being found is still lost rather than living is dead Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. in
1: their spiritual walk in relation to god we cannot allow that to happen in the church
0: This is essentially like what you say toward the end of your article, and we'll finish up here. I have one more question, but that this is a functional support for homosexual practice and transgenderism. And you say it's not just anti-scriptural, but like you said there, Jesus weeps. It's anti-Jesus. So, so often- the case that's brought up is we're going to be like Jesus. And we've already talked through the circles and lines and that sort of piece. And somebody told me, we do have a lot of people who've been watching By I'm not quite sure it's 4,500 anymore. So I'm checking. Uh, I don't know. I looked down at my phone it said maybe 4,500 people are on Facebook. We have a lot of people. I'm sure a lot of people see this. So just in case I was wrong, I want to make sure that I didn't give a false impression there. But I want to finish up with this this idea, like if it's anti, it, this idea of functional support being anti-Jesus. Um And and I wonder how much of this is connected to accepting the Bible as the authority for our lives. Is it just is it really just a rejection of Scripture? I mean, it seems like he's trying to uh, fit it in, but I don't really think that's the case.
1: Well, you know, it certainly is a rejection of Scripture. There's no question about that, because this is the core value of biblical sexual ethics. But. Precisely because it is a rejection of the very foundation of sexual ethics, according to Jesus. I don't want people to get the impression this is merely rejecting a view of inspiration, like inerrancy. This is not just doing that. This is rejecting Jesus's own lordship Mm -hmm. over your life. If Jesus considers this the foundation of sexual ethics, and one of the two main groups that he reached out to, We're sexual sinners. One of the two, two of the six antitheses where he says in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you used to be able to get away with the following, now I tell you no longer, where he closes those loopholes, have to do with sex. And Jesus says the foundation of sex is God's intentional creation of male and female, two complementary sexual counterparts. Then you are ending up rejecting Jesus's lordship. And something else that I want to make sure I get out before we close, if I can which is that people always say, yeah, but Jesus reached out to sexual sinners. You see how much he loved him? That's all that Andy Stanley is doing. No, that is not what Andy Stanley is doing. Yes, Andy Stanley is reaching out to sexual sinners, but he's not coupling it with what Jesus did, which is the intensified demand of God on their lives, calling them to repentance, calling them to a transformed life without which they couldn't inherit the kingdom he proclaims. It does absolutely nothing to reach out to people to show that you, you're happy for them, you, you want to uh, praise what they're doing, you want to welcome them into your midst, eat with you. That does absolutely nothing if it doesn't lead to repentance and transformation. And mm-hmm. Jesus always did both. For mm-hmm. example, Jesus is outreach who did he reach out to? Mostly sexual sinners and tax collectors. Why tax collectors? Because tax collectors were known to be economic exploiters in first century Palestine. They collected many times over what they were supposed to collect, pocketing the excess for themselves. They were defrauding other people living on the economic margins near starvation. When Jesus reached out every bit as much to the tax collectors as he did to sexual sinners, did that indicate that Jesus was soft on economic exploitation? (laughs) There's nobody who argues that. Not even liberals argue that. Yeah, sure. Even liberals admit, no, Jesus was well within the prophetic trajectory of critiquing misuse and abuse of money, mammon, right? Major element. Yet, when we see him reaching out to sexual sinners, we conclude he must be soft on sexual sin. He didn't bring up the need for repentance. (laughs) Extraordinary. Sorry to laugh,
0: but it's just like seeing the analogy is so helpful to me to put these two things together. So we're
1: okay with him, yes, moving from reaching out to calling on repentance of the tax collectors, but we're not okay with the same sort of process with regard to sexual sinners. Absolutely extraordinary. So in the end, Andy Stanley presenting this as a loving outreach is giving you only half the gospel. Hmm. And a half gospel is a truncated gospel. And a truncated gospel, as Paul will say in Galatians 1, is no gospel. No gospel. No gospel.
0: Yeah. Oh, this is why I'm not just calling you Dr. Robert Gagnon. I'm calling you Prophet. Robert Gagnon that's I mean I know you don't want to be stoned in case but I understand I'm just so thankful for your voice and the way that God's using you and I again refer people to the article published at wesleybiblicalseminary.edu that you gave to us to submit and the, the work that you've done with us and I think institutions need to be cautious like honestly check in with your institute the institutions that you're serving that you're a part of are they speaking out on this and, and where do they stand um and sometimes you have to follow the breadcrumbs like we've done in this situation that eventually became explicit. We kind of saw this coming and it's sad. And we, I think people like Michael Brown, you're, we're both friends with Michael Brown, have a personal relationship with Andy Stanley, have publicly called for his repentance. And um, you know, since he's in that relationship, this is something that we hope happens. Like we hope that the, the words that we're saying here would not just lead him back, but others too who might have been swayed by these arguments. So thank you, Robert, for coming on. It means a lot to me. Thanks for your uh, publishing this article with us at WBS.
1: Oh, my complete commendation of WBS. There are a few institutions that I would do that, but WBS is very solid uh, for the Lord, and I'm uh, happy to be associated.
0: Thanks so much. All right, friends, thanks for checking this out. If you get a chance, if you could share this, it'll be on Facebook. But then, of course, we'll have it up here probably pretty soon on the audio podcast and then on YouTube as well. God bless you all.